Howdy, welcome back to another episode of our weekly podcast. We know you've got a buffet of media to choose from each week. That's why we put a lot of effort into finding stories from the Bible that have relevant lessons for us today. I hope you enjoy. Uh, This morning, I want to talk to you about hell and hopefully show you that I think there's a whole new perspective on hell that may not be what we have always thought. Uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky made the statement, a society should be judged not by how it treats its outstanding citizens, but by how it treats its criminals. Two out of three Americans identify as Christian. There are more Christians in America than in any other country in the world. Yet Revelation 13 describes America, the home of Christianity, becoming the greatest enemy of Christ and his church in the closing moments of time. 2,000 years ago, church and state joined hands to persecute the conscientious followers of Jesus. As the religion of Jesus merged with Rome, it became the papacy, a Christian industrial complex. The Inquisition sought to extinguish anyone who didn't fall in line with the superpowers declared truths And they did that via torture and death. I thought to myself, it's interesting. This sermon I'm going to share this morning, if I had preached it 500 years ago, they would have escorted me out and burned me after I was finished. Probably wouldn't have let me finish. To justify torture in the name of God, it is a much easier sell to the general public if you can show that God also tortures So in the 1500s, we see the rise of a teaching taught by the leaders of Christianity that God tortures people. Not just any torture, but torture with fire. This was peddled by Johann Johann Tetzel to fundraise to build the Vatican. And I think it's a good thing to know the science of immolation or death by fire. It takes 30 seconds to two minutes to die. But this new teaching said that God would sustain your life and not let you die while continuing to burn you with fire. Well, God may not do it personally, right? He delegates it to the work of someone called the devil. But at the end of the day, if God is all-powerful, then he must condone this operation. Fast forward. Over the last 20 years, in the name of patriotism, peace, and protection, America has maintained secret black sites where torture has taken place around the world, paid for by our tax dollars, and done outside the jurisdiction of American law. All by a nation that professes to be a lamb-like Christian nation. Colin Murphy's book, God's Jury, The Inquisition and the Making of the Modern World, traces the history of the Inquisitions, and there were several, and draws parallels between some of the interrogation techniques used in previous centuries with the ones today. He says, and I quote, a few years ago, the intelligence agencies had some transcripts released of interrogations that were done at Guantanamo. And the interrogations done by the Inquisition were surprisingly similar and just as detailed 
And then he quotes, he says, they were virtually verbatim. In the late late 1300s, we see that during the Spanish Inquisition, interrogators began using more elaborate forms of torture, such as the rack, the pulley, and one we've heard of lately, waterboarding. He goes on to say, and I quote, when you read accounts of torture, you get the unmistakable impression that the people doing the torture or conducting the torture somewhere inside them They think they are saving souls. I found that fascinating because John 16.2 says, the day will come when you will be expelled from the synagogues or the places of worship. The time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a service for God. So I'd like to confess to you that I, since I was a kid, have identified myself as an annihilationist. One who believes God does not currently burn sinners with fire and torture them. Since I was a kid, I believe that sinners will not suffer forever, but will be burned up just like when I put a log in the fire after a short time. It is ashes. It is no longer burning. Does anyone else believe that? A couple of us, okay. But this morning I have a confession to make. I have believed in a diet version of hell. Diet hell, if you will. And I no longer believe in this. And I'd like to share this potential heresy with you this morning. What led me to this heresy is becoming a father. Let's assume my daughter Ava, or yeah, Ava, raise your hand. Right there, okay. Is looking up at me outside the gates of paradise. I did all I could to lead her to God, but somehow I failed. And yet somehow I am saved. Jesus looks over at me and says, now it is time for the event or the experience of hell that my annihilationist mind has long believed. And now Jesus will hurl fire from the sky and up from the earth, just like the flood did with water, And my daughter, who is lost, will now be tortured for minutes or hours or days or weeks by combustible fire. Then I want to ask you, if you were a parent, how long would you wish to see this punishment of combustible fire take place on your child until you said to Jesus, Okay, that's enough. Please stop. Please let them die. Why are you doing this? Because if combustible fire kills someone in 30 to 120 seconds, then after that, someone is keeping this victim alive arbitrarily to cause more pain and to ultimately torture them. And then I started to think, how is it that I have more mercy and more love for a lost child than God does? And I realized in this moment, something is either wrong with my picture of God 
I've got to figure this out. How can it be that I'm more merciful than a Savior that laid down his life, risked all of heaven to save me, to save you? What do I do? You know, it, it, was, it was easy always to tell my secular friends or yet to be annihilationist homeboys, Jesus is not a crazy madman. Someone who lives on the main floor and yet down in the basement, they're torturing the bad guys. They're screaming. They're in pain for days on end. I would have rejected that. No way. That's not Jesus. That's, that's not how he works. Yet I had no issue thinking that this same Jesus would be the host of Hellapalooza, an event, an experience, and he would oversee the torture of the lost personally after the 1,000 years. And for some people, he'd let it go on for a while. And I think this is important because we mimic God. If we believe something is condoned by God, we follow that example. If we believe it's condemned, we shun that example. If he acts a certain way, we'll act a certain way. But if he acts worse than us, we lose all respect for God. And so this quote says it better than I could from the book Great Controversy. It is beyond the power of the human mind to estimate the evil which has been wrought by the heresy of eternal torment. The religion of the Bible, full of love and goodness and abounding in compassion, is darkened by superstition and clothed with terror. When we consider in what false colors Satan has painted the character of God, can we wonder that our merciful creator is feared, dreaded, and even hated? The appalling views of God which have spread over the world from the teachings of the pulpit have made thousands, yes, millions of skeptics and infidels. End quote. So I want to flesh this out a little bit. I've got a lot of Bible verses because I don't want you to think I'm just making this up. The Bible does speak of hell, but it says the punishment of the wicked and the punishment of the righteous, they both go to hell. And I'm going to read some verses for you. It's the word Sheol or Hades, Psalm 917. The wicked shall be turned into hell. Psalm 1610, David makes the case for the righteous. For you will not leave my soul in hell. David, we're talking about a man after God's own heart. Neither will you allow your holy one to see corruption. The same word used is grave. It's, it's the, the concordance number 7585 if you wanted to really get in the details. It's the same word for grave in Genesis 37, verse 35. And in Psalm 89, 48, it says, What man is he that lives and shall not see death? Shall he deliver his soul from the hand of the grave? Or we could have used the word hell. Hosea 13, 14, I, God, will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. There is a hope for those who go to the grave, who know God, that he will not leave us there. So the Bible and in Adventist circles, it's easy. We often compare death to sleep. We do this because when Lazarus dies, Jesus says, he's sleeping. His, di his disciples, they're very confused by this. And then Jesus says, Lazarus has died. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that not everyone will go to the grave. 
But those who do will be resurrected at the second coming of Jesus, and only then are we given immortality. So there's another belief that comes into this idea of hell. When I die, do I go somewhere? Or do I, am I just sleeping in the grave? 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. Then it says a key line, And the dead in Christ will rise first, in fact. Daniel 12.2, Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. There are two resurrections in the Bible. One of them is at the second coming. One of them is at the third coming. You don't hear a lot of people talk about the third coming of Jesus after the 1,000 years in heaven. Revelation chapter 20, verse 5 says, the rest of the dead lived not again until the 1,000 years were finished. It is the righteous who are resurrected at the second coming. It is the unrighteous, the lost, that are resurrected at the third coming. And the Bible says in Revelation 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such, the second death has no power. Okay, so I wondered, as I got into this study, how many other Adventists, who are traditionally annihilationists, believe in this diet version of hell? Because Adventists believe the wicked will burn up. The wicked are not now burning. They are not going to burn forever. That there is no punishment for the wicked until after the thousand years. That's a traditional Adventist view. But most then believe in an event called hell. A short span of time where God does inflict torture. And there is a reason for this. It is because there are a few statements from Ellen White, the most influential founder of the Adventist Church, and I'm going to read one of them. From Great Controversy, page 673. Talking about the destruction of the wicked, it says, Some are destroyed as in a moment, while others suffer many days. So someone introduced me to this idea, and then I read that, and I said, they're a heretic. They told me, keep studying. I thought, well, that doesn't make sense. So this idea, this, this led me to believe God in the future, will actively sustain some people's lives while inflicting torturous, fiery punishment upon those same bodies. Because if flames burn things up and someone is alive after 120 seconds feeling pain, then God is sustaining their life so that they can feel pain. And that is torture. So what do you do with these contradictory ideas? My encouragement is you keep studying. Ezekiel 33:11 says, "As I live, says the Lord God, and this I think is very important in this subject. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God will not, has not, nor ever will be glad that someone who chose to go away against him, he will not be happy about that. No pleasure in the death of the wicked." Where does his pleasure come from? The verse goes on. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die? There's a question. Does the Bible teach that sin has an end? Yes or no? Yes, it absolutely does. The Bible also says, if you don't confess your sins and turn from them, they will destroy you. 
that the wages, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. And so this means something very tragic. Not everyone will be saved. Some people will be lost. Though God's desire is that everyone is saved. John 3, 17 sums it up. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So you have to know, here's why this is key. Get into the mind of God. What does he want everyone to be saved? No one to be lost. I take no pleasure, God says, in lost people. Matthew 25, 41 tells us that hell, this is the key thing, was prepared for the devil and his angels. Very specifically. Because they weren't deceived. They were very clear. We've all been deceived, but they were very clear. We have been exposed to the beauty of paradise and we want nothing to do with it. So here's another question. Does God use fire to destroy the wicked? And the answer is yes. But there are two types of fire. And this was the great aha moment that I never would have imagined in the Bible. Two types of fire... But I want to go into the first one. Because if you just knew there was one type, it gets confusing. And I've never known of two types of fire. Revelation chapter 20 says, Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Seems like the fire I'm aware of. Revelation 20 verse 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire. And then it goes on to the end of that verse, And shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Which Okay, then God is in the torturing business. But this combustible fire is not the same as all fire in the Bible. The suffering the Bible really talks about is this suffering of the second death. This is the kind of thing that can cause torture. And we have an example of it in the Bible. When Jesus was in Gethsemane, he begins to describe His soul is just dying. And yet, all around him, there doesn't seem to be a problem. He's in this beautiful garden. We've all tasted of this, though. You've done something wrong. You've taken something that's not yours. It's totally your fault that something has happened. You've cheated. Something has happened. And when you are in the presence of the people that are innocent or that you have wronged, you feel terrible. There are knots in your stomach Ulcers, sweat, tears, gritting, gnashing your teeth, headaches, whatever it may be, and the list goes on. And I want to get into why that is. Not all fire in the Bible is the same. Malachi chapter 4 verse 1 says, Behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven. And all that are proud, all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up says the Lord of hosts. It shall leave neither root nor branch. Still seems like the fire I'm very aware of. Malachi 4 verse 3, you shall tread down the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, says the Lord of hosts. Still seems like the fire we're all used to. The Bible is clear. There is an end to the wicked. They do not live forever. Psalm 37, 9, evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. 37.10 of the Psalms. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. So right there, we're starting to prove they cannot be sustained in fires forever because the Bible says 
there's a point. The wicked don't exist anymore. Most of Christianity doesn't teach this. Think about this. We teach, we as most Christians, maybe we're in a place where we're a little segment of annihilationists. God doesn't do that. But most people who identify as Christian today believe in a place called hell where the lost will burn forever. While we're drinking pina coladas in paradise, they are being tortured, sustained alive in hell. And they're okay with this. I'll tell you how okay they are with this. In our videos we've been making and putting on TikTok, we've got nearly 10 million views on one topic. Hell. And if you want to infuriate Christians, tell them hell doesn't last forever. Tell them hell is not what they've thought, and they will lose their minds. I've never seen people get so mad to think that God doesn't torture people in hell. One friend, though, gave me a little bit of perspective. They said, most people have been abused and traumatized, and they are craving justice. Don't take that away from them. Okay, so there's, there's good perspective in life. Psalm 50, verse 3, our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. Still sounds like the fire we're all aware of. Isaiah 47, 14, behold, they shall be a stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. Isaiah 66, 15, behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury, his rebuke with flames of fire. Still seems like the fire we're all familiar with. But now the question, what kind of fire? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29 says something very interesting. Now we turn the page. It says, God is a consuming fire. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26. Ezekiel has this vision, and he looks, and he begins to describe God, and he says, above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne, as the appearance of a sapphire stone, that's blue, and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man upon it. And I saw as the color of amber and as the appearance of fire round about within it. From the appearance of his loins even upwards and from the appearance of his loins even downwards, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. This is interesting. People describing God as on fire. Exodus chapter 3. Acts chapter 7. These, these, both these cha- chapters, and I'd love to share with you my notes. You don't have to take notes. I'd love to give these to you. They talk about fire that does not consume. This is where you have to get really to ask the question, wait a second, what kind of fire doesn't burn things up? The burning bush. Moses is in the desert. He looks over. He sees something that looks like it's on fire, but it doesn't burn up. It's not smoking. What kind of fire is this? And then we have the tongues of fire over those in the upper room, yet the building is not burning. Leviticus 10 talks about the fire, this is pretty harsh, coming from God to the two sons of Aaron that were drinking and brought all these crazy things into the sanctuary. And you think, oh, see, fire from God killed them, burned them up. But in the verse four, they carry these two men, their bodies and their clothing out of the sanctuary. What kind of fire does that? On Sinai, God, who identifies himself as the I am, later Jesus identifies himself as the I am, 
in Exodus 24, 17, in Hebrews 12, 29, they make this case that God is a consuming fire. 2 Chronicles 5, 14, 7, 1, 3. I've never quoted so many Bible verses, but I want you to know these aren't my opinions. We're building the case describing God's fire that his presence, his very presence is fire and it fills the temple in these verses. Yet the temple doesn't burn down because it also describes it as God's fire is his glory. It's a type of fire. The sight of the glory of God was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel, Exodus 24. Daniel 7 says, God on the throne has fire like rivers flowing out from him. One author described it like this, God's law, his glory, his love, and his presence are all equated to a kind of fire. Revelation 15.2 says the redeemed will be in the midst of a sea of fire. So the question of sinners burning in the fire of hell, what is this talking about? Because we have these examples in Scripture where people come into the presence of God, they're glowing when they leave. Israel literally asked Moses, put something over your face. We don't want to look at you. Why is that? The question is, why do they not? And the reason continues to come out. People's response to that fire is, I'm not worthy. I am not worthy. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 33. And I think this is probably the key verse to make this point. Isaiah 33 and verse 14. We got to read it carefully because this is where the paradigm shift takes place. Isaiah chapter 33 and verse 14. It says this, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? There's the question. That's the question we're asking. Who will dwell which is a strange way to ask a question, who's going to live amidst the fire? Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burnings? In other words, in another way we could describe this, who's going to burn forever? Verse 15, the answer. Who's going to burn forever? Who's going to dwell in the everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. That's who's going to burn forever. He who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil, he will dwell on high. And verse 16 goes on. To the question of who's going to burn forever and ever, the Bible is clear, the righteous. But we've all read these verses about hellfire and the verses about the lake of fire and burning. We go on to read that Satan or Lucifer, the former covering cherub of heaven, we're told once walked in paradise. Ezekiel 28 is like a biography of Lucifer. And it says, in the midst of the fiery stones of God's presence is where he came from. And I just find it fascinating that today he promotes the idea that the last place you want to be is in the fire. Be afraid of the fire. I know this is a lot to, to wrestle with. We're told how Lucifer will be punished. Ezekiel 28, verse 18, it says, talking to Lucifer, 
You have defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. And then here's the judgment. Therefore, I will bring forth a fire from the midst of thee, and it shall devour thee. And I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. Two fires are described here, one coming from within and one coming from without. One affects someone on the inside and one affects someone on the outside. One affects who you are, the mind, the psyche, the soul, and the other affects the body. What is the result of being in the presence of God? Because there's the question. I couldn't answer it better than Great Controversy 37. It says, by a life of sin, the lost have placed themselves so out of harmony with God, their natures have become so debased with evil that the manifestation of his glory is to them a consuming fire. To the wicked, it will have an effect. To the righteous, an entirely different effect. Malachi's clear on that. Uh, Malachi chapter 3 says, Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. Like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify. See, there's a purpose to the fire. Purify the sons of evil, of, of Levi. Not punish them. The fire is meant to purify and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. All right, we're coming down the home stretch. The Bible promises us, in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, our selfishness, God is faithful and just to forgive us. There are no hoops to jump through to get forgiveness from God. It is literally a sentence. And then he says he'll begin to cleanse us from unrighteousness, from selfishness. Because, here's what the, the thing God knows. Sin, in its very nature, is flammable. And in that final moment, when we're all amidst the same fire of the glory of God, to some of us, we feel amazing. To others of us, it will be torture. Because we've held on to sin, and sin eats us up. If you know what guilt feels like, you know this feeling of being eat up. This is why it's so important to be cleansed of combustible sins. The Bible tells us some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. The principle here is, that's 1 Timothy 5.24, get your sins out of your hands. They are literally like a tank of gasoline near a fire. You got to get them out of your soul, into the hands of God now, while he can save you before it's too late, and your sin burns you up, and here's how, with remorse, guilt, and shame, we know this both now and in the judgment. This is why there was this yearly day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement in the Jewish economy. Men and women were to be afflicting their souls, really having an inward uh, introspective thought, is there anything I'm holding onto that is selfish? Anything I need to confess and turn away from? Any addictions, any, any things I've done to other people, I need to ask forgiveness for. This was a day a year, like a holiday. This was the day you prepare for to wipe the slate clean and start anew. And now we live in this modern day and, uh, day of atonement. The question for us is, are we afflicting our souls now instead of waiting till the execution of the judgment where we're holding on to things that will literally destroy us and that painful gnashing of teeth and guilt will consume us? 
There is combustible fire in the Bible. Please hear me clearly. Once people are shown the beauty of God and his mercy after the thousand years that the redeemed have been in heaven, then at the second resurrection, just before the final execution of judgment, so go there, everyone sees the part they've played through life, through the story of good and evil, how they hurt others. Some of us are at peace because God has forgiven us for that. We sent those things ahead. I don't want to deal with this after the thousand years. Lord, forgive me now. Help me now. But now in the presence of Jesus, where they watch how he gave his life for them, he gave them every chance in life. You remember that plane ride you were on? I was talking to you. You remember that bus ride? Remember those car rides? Remember in the shower? You remember I was trying to get your attention and you just didn't want to listen. I did everything I could and I just want to show you that. And all of us get to watch, I'm sure, some unique version of this film. But what's happening is we start to realize, yeah, I rejected that. I didn't want to hear that. I didn't ask forgiveness there. And this begins the greatest torture that the lost will ever experience in the presence of the beauty and the glory of God. Because remember, when Moses is so impressed by God, he says, show me your glory. And God begins to describe, this is what I'm about. I'm merciful. I'm long-suffering. In other words, who are you? And when you see this purity of Jesus, you can't help but think, man, I did all this to Jesus? And so you can imagine now that the lost begin to suffer this internal torment like Jesus endured the night of Gethsemane, where we are literally told his heart began to break, to melt like wax, coming apart where he begins to sweat blood. That only happens if the heart is literally disintegrating. And we often think Jesus died of torture and nails and a crown of thorns. This is not true. This is the pop culture version of the cross. Jesus died before he was supposed to have died from the torture of the cross. Why? Because sin consumed him. Our sins were on him, and he was thinking of all the wrongs, all the things, everything right in that moment, and it literally broke his heart, and he died. I'll read another quote. Could those whose lives have been spent in rebellion against God be suddenly transported to heaven? Could those whose hearts are filled with hatred of God, not liking the truth, hatred of holiness, mingle with the heavenly family? Could they endure the glory of God and the Lamb? This is Great Controversy 542. Heaven, with its purity, holiness, and peace, would be torture to them. The glory of God would be a consuming fire, and they would long to flee from that holy place. They would welcome destruction. The lost in this moment of hell, in the presence of the glory of God, which is a fire in and of itself that consumes you if you're holding on to sin, which is internal. They will finally get to the paint, will this point where this will crush them, and they no longer want to be in the midst of God. And they will beg God to end their existence. Not because he's been torturing them with combustible fire. I hope this gives you a whole new view of God's goodness. 
But the crazy thing is, some people are going to fight against it. Some have so much selfishness that it consumes them for more than a few minutes, more than a few hours, perhaps even more than a few days. This is hell. And finally, they die. And then that combustible fire, the lake of fire, comes down from God. It's over. It's an event. It's not eternal. It's for a moment. It cleanses the earth. It turns the bodies of the wicked into ashes and back into soil. And the fire of God's presence is what will cause that weeping and gnashing of teeth because of remorse, guilt, and shame. And the the most awesome thing is we've been told this now to avoid the punishment. We don't have to suffer from any fire. I love stories in the Bible, like the one with the three Hebrews. You can be fireproof. That if you are so close to God, that story literally shows you combustible fire can't burn you. Matthew 3.11 says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you, talking about Jesus, with the Holy Ghost, with fire. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 tells us the reason anyone may be lost is because they refused to love the truth and be saved by it. That's why people will be lost. I don't want to hear the truth. I don't want to hear that and consider it and chew on it. And I'm not interested in even listening. And Paul says, because of that, there will be anguish on every man's soul who does evil. This pain of guilt and loss is what Jesus experienced in Gethsemane as he tasted the punishment of all of our sins in one night, and it literally led to his death from his heart breaking for us. And Matthew tells us about that night. Jesus began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul, or what we would describe as my mind, who, who we are, my character, is sorrowful, even to death. And the question is why? Because he was facing the sins, the selfishness of the world in the presence of his father. And he found these sins horrifying, like torture to his mind and soul. Jesus laid down his life for you and I, and he wants to give us that peace of mind that we crave, the happiness that we chase. He will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves because he's better than we are. If there was anything I learned through this study, he's better than me. I wouldn't allow torching, and hallelujah, he won't either. So if you want to give your life into the hands of this loving God, and I hope you've had a whole new vision of this, and I hope you don't believe anything I've said, and you go study it for yourself. But I think the Bible is clear on this, that the Christian teaching of punishment and hell is heresy. But the Bible is clear, and it's beautiful, that our sins in and of themselves are the things that will consume us in the end if we hold on to them. If, your, if it is your desire to put those things ahead and ask the Lord, take care of this stuff for me. I don't want to deal with it later. Give me the peace now so I don't have to suffer later. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good and that you are better than we are. We thank you that your son came here to represent to all the earth what you're like.
And today we ask that the Spirit will fill this place, that in our lives we will be guided by you, that our consciences will be at peace. And if you're wrestling with any one of us about an issue or a thing that we're holding on to and we like, and it's like a magnet that we can't seem to run from, I just want to pray that you will give us hope and joy that you can take that off our hands and to give those burdens into your hands. And in exchange, you'll give us peace, both now and forever. Thank you for this beautiful teaching. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We record these messages each week at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Adairsville. And if you're ever in the area, we'd love to see you. Stop in and say hi and enjoy some good Southern food with us. We'll see you next week.